Good morning, church. I'm bringing you the word of God this morning. We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but we're going to start just with the last few words of chapter 12. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. If you are here for the first time this morning, you've come in the middle of a series that we are doing called, called Body Build, um, which is 1 Corinthians chapters 11 to 14. Uh, we thought that we would have a look at that in the final term of the year. It's important for us to uh, examine those chapters. They're not often taught. There's lots of controversial stuff in those chapters about tongues and prophecies and gifts and miracles. And we wanted to see what it's like and what it's about and how it applies and challenges this church as well. Um, we've already had a look at chapters 11 and 12 over the last three weeks, and you can catch that up on any of the podcast platforms. You just search for Christchurch Stellenbosch, and it's all uploaded and up to date, to my knowledge. Um, today is a chapter that you would think is much less controversial than last week's chapter. Chapter 12 was about um, gifts and how the church at Corinth uh, had really become quite divided over the subject of gifts. They had the view that there were those who had and there were those who didn't have. Those with the, with the supernatural gifts, those with the ecstatic gifts, um, they were prized, those gifts were prized above the ordinary mundane gifts. Um, and so Paul has to write to them to straighten them out. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 really are the controversial chapters. You would think that chapter 13 we could all agree on. But actually we're going to see that uh, chapter 13 will kind of hit us under the radar this morning. The problem with the word love, 
which is what this chapter is all about, is that it is vague and overused, and therefore it's weak. I love Brussels sprouts. I love my wife. I love my car. Are those equal statements? The word love is very loose, isn't it? And it can be made really to apply to anything. There is a subtlety and a breadth of meaning to the word love that gives it a variety of meanings and therefore it needs to be qualified if it's going to be understood correctly. I'm told that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans thought that love was a weakness and not a virtue. And so for Paul to dedicate an entire chapter to the subject would have been very countercultural to the church at Corinth. And isn't it true that our generation has distorted the meaning of love and turned God is love into love is God? And so we chase relationships and we chase love in an idolatrous way in our generation. Let me give you a working Christian definition of love. It'll be on the slide. Intentionally giving oneself for the benefit of others, irrespective of whether or not it is deserved. Let's just keep that up for a minute. Intentionally giving oneself for the benefit of others, irrespective of whether or not it is deserved. That's a good description of God's love for us. Of course, there is more. That's not the full bottle on the subject of love. But I want to suggest to you that that is the kind of love that is mentioned ten times in this passage. Christian love is not a feeling. It is an action. It can be commanded. John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. You can't command a feeling or an emotion, but you can command an action. Not only that, but it also can be promised as in the wedding vows that we are familiar with. It is embodied by Jesus who gave himself to those who rejected him. The Corinthians were a gifted church. There was no shortage of gifts whatsoever. They were very proud of themselves. People would have come from all over to visit them. They were the biggest show in town, and everybody wanted to know what they had got right. They were running conferences on church growth and all of those things. Not really, but you know what I mean. It's ironic that many of the problems within the church were there because God had blessed them so richly. The gifts, we're told in chapter 1 that they lacked no gift, but the gifts were threatening to tear the church apart. Maybe it's a case of too much of a good thing is bad. And it was in the area of love that they had their biggest challenge. I'm glad that Megan took the initiative this morning to read the last verse of chapter 12. I don't think it'll be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible open in front of you, you can look at it for yourself. Chapter 12 and verse 31 says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Um, but it, it might be better translated like this. You are eagerly desiring the greater gifts, but I will show you a more excellent way. Love. And that does fit with the context and with the tone of the chapter. He's not commanding them to go looking for greater gifts. Rather, he's chastising them for being fixated on the spectacular gifts. Stop making such a big thing about the spectacular gifts. It's interesting that in chapter 12, the spectacular gifts like tongues come at the bottom of the list of gifts. 
Rather pursue the teaching gifts which are on the top of the list. And so I want you to notice three things with me this morning from this short chapter. First of all, the necessity of love, verses 1 to 3. And in verse 1, he starts with the big three. We've got the big five in this country here, the big three in Corinth. If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love... I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. They are the big three. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Those are the gifts that were greatly prized amongst the Corinthians in those days. This paragraph, these first three verses hold together because there is a formula that Paul uses, which is, if I X, Y, Z, and do not have love, I am nothing. If I X, Y, Z, and do not have love, I am nothing. The church with every spiritual gift is nothing if it does not have love. And so first of all, tongues, even if you could speak in a heavenly language that only angels can understand, says Paul, all God hears is a noisy racket if it is done in a loveless way. Um, I've told you before that opposite my old church was a Hindu temple, and once, and we were great friends with them and had collaborated with them in parking and other such matters. And once they asked us, they invited us to join them on a walk around the neighborhood to clang their cymbals, to ring their gongs, and to sing to their gods, which I gratefully declined. The gonging of gongs, the beating of drums, it was to get the attention of the gods, and it was to ward off evil spirits. That was what the Hindus told me, and it's exactly what was going on around this church in Corinth. The pagans would gong gongs and would ring bells and would beat drums as they tried to get the attention of the gods. If it lacks love, says Paul, impressive gifting is like an empty gong. Your worship might be lively and noisy, but it is empty. It counts for nothing. It is noise in God's ears. What about prophecy and knowledge? He says to them, even if you have a hotline to heaven... Even if you have insight into mysteries, even if you know the Bible overview and the book of Romans like the back of your hand, even if you have mountain-moving faith, if you don't have love, it is worth nothing. In verse 3, he talks about how empty persecution and social justice is without love. If I give all I possess to the poor... And give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I can do impressive things, enormously extraordinary things for self-interest. Like suicide bombers, deeply committed to a cause, but equally deeply committed to self-interest as they get their heavenly rewards. Self-interest. Do you remember, I've used this illustration before, but I remember, I don't know when it was, back in the 90s when Oprah was at her height, you know, the Queen of America. And um, on her show, I think there was an audience of 250 or 300 people. Do you remember the one where she gave them all a motor car? And she was interviewed afterwards and asked, why did you do that? And her answer was, it makes me feel so good. 
You can do extraordinary things, can't you? At great cost to yourself. But actually she was giving those motor cars to herself because it made her feel good. Without love, you are nothing, says Paul. Spirituality is worthless if you lack love. You might not lack any spiritual gift, but if you lack that one thing, then look at what he says in verse 2. It's quite, it's quite rude. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. You are nothing. Look at verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Strong language from our apostle. And so the necessity of love. Each of the big three, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, can be done without love, but without love they are of no value. Secondly, the character of love. The necessity of love, the character of love. Verses 4 to 7. He describes this love that he's looking for but not finding in the Corinthian church. And aren't these hallmark card words? Verses 4 to 7. Just look at them again. Love is patient. Love is kind. Do you know that word patient and the word kind is not an adjective, which is how it appears in our English Bibles. It's actually a verb. He's saying love is being patient. Love is being kind. Um, what amazing words. Um, uh, there are, I think, 15 words that he uses here. What a favorite passage this has been at weddings. I'm sure you've heard it ad nauseum at weddings. Um, wasn't, it read, wasn't it read at the wedding of Harry and what's her name? Megan? I think as well. Um, but I want you to know that as these words were read out the first time on Sunday at Corinth, there would have been a lot of red faces. There would have been a lot of staring at the floor, a lot of shame and disgrace. For these words are not written as a love poem, as magnificent as they are. They are, they are written as a stinging rebuke to a church who was divided over the matter of gifts and who were, quite honestly, loveless. When we read these verses in context, you realize how stinging these words are. Paul was exposing them. He's painting a picture of disgrace in this church that claimed to be spiritual, this well-taught church with lots of gifts, famous, the destination of many. Paul measures them. And as they measure themselves, as they hear these words, as they see what real spirit-filled Christianity looks like in these 15 qualities, they would have been ashamed. I encourage you on your own time this afternoon, go and have a look at this again. And it's worth meditating on each of these qualities, for they are magnificent. It's worth examining your own heart for they really are important qualities and definitions of what it means to love. I want to just draw one, for example, just one out. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I want you to notice the moral character 
of love, the moral character of love. After somebody we know committed adultery, she said to us, I was just following my heart. It's because I loved him. Adultery is never kind. It's lust and it's covetousness and it's self-centeredness. You might have deep and overwhelming feelings for the other person, but that is irrelevant. It's not love. For love is patient and kind and considers others. True love is always concerned for the other person's well-being. The other values, I wish we had time to go through all of them. They are magnificent and it's worth doing. This is a beautiful chapter and it is an awful chapter. For it is a mirror of our shortcomings. I want you to, if you dare, let's have verse 4 up again, if you don't mind, Don. Instead of the word love, will you put your own name there in the privacy of your own heart? Grant is patient. Grant is kind. Grant does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Can you feel the weight? Can you feel your failure? I certainly can feel mine. I can't even read the next verse, unless you let me use your name. <laughs> it is a terrible chapter, is it not? It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's one of the most extraordinary pieces on love ever written. But how awful it is when you realize and you look in the mirror how far short we fall. He ends this paragraph with verse 7, which is better translated in the ESV as, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Um, is that the NIV? That is the NIV. I, I did put it in the notes there, Don. Is there another verse that you can pull up? Never mind. Uh, it says in the ESV, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I think it puts it quite strongly in the ESV. Bears all things, the NIV says, always protects. Bears all things, that is, love puts up with others rather than being offended and leaving, um, which would have been a real danger in a church where gifting was valued and where one-upmanship was the order of the day. If somebody stood on my toes, if somebody didn't thank me, if somebody forgot to notice me, or if I was assigned a task that I thought was beneath me, then I'm going to leave. I'm going to vote with my feet. Bear, Paul says. Love bears all things. Stop being selfish. Believes all things. I take it that he means they assumes the best of others and not automatically assumes the worst. Stop being unloving. Assume the best of one another. True love hopes for and expects, looks forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Doesn't give up and then leave. And true love perseveres with others 
It's that kind of love, isn't it, that enables Christians to bear huge burdens with one another. Friends, what the Bible is teaching us here is that the proof that the church is spiritual is seen not in the gifts, but it is seen in the love that people show for one another. I wonder what Paul would say to us if he spent a month here with us. I wonder if he would say that chapter 13 applies to us in the same way as it applied to the church at Corinth. Show me a church where people really love each other across racial boundaries, across educational and class boundaries, and I will show you a church that is spiritual. The necessity of love, the character of love, and lastly, the permanence of love. He comes back in verse 8 to the big three. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it'll pass away. These are the gifts that the Christians prized the most, and Paul has a shock in store for them. These things that they were so proud of are only temporary things. They will soon pass away. The prophecies will end. The tongues literally will cease, is what the Greek says, and the knowledge will pass away. Stop making such a big fuss of the big three, says Paul. A day will come when there won't be prophecy, tongues, or knowledge. These things are only temporary. Rather, grow in love for one another. For that is what will remain when the big three are long gone and forgotten. Verse 8, love never fails. Or better translated, love will never fall away. Prophecies will. Knowledge will. Tongues will, but not love. Love is all that will count in the long run. The gifts are only temporary. They're also not only temporary, but they're partial. They're incomplete, the gifts. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge are deficient. Whatever you think you know, it's just partial knowledge. Even if you can prophesy, you can only prophesy in part, he says. Even the apostles didn't have full knowledge. We only know in part. We only prophesy in part. A time is coming when the partial will give way to the perfect, and there will be no use for tongues, prophecy, or knowledge. When perfection comes, the imperfect disappears, says Paul. The gifts, the big three, are like training wheels on a kid's bicycle. That's how you to think of them. It'll soon be redundant. You'll wonder why you ever needed them. And he uses two illustrations to make his point. The first one in verse 11, where he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I didn't need training wheels anymore. It's time to grow up, Corinthians. The gifts are not an end in themselves. The gifts are given to build the church up in love. They should have realized that the gifts were not an end in themselves. They were a means to love. But they saw them as an, as an end in themselves. Stop being Peter Pan Christians. Stop using your gifts to show off. Start using them to love others. The second illustration he uses is in verse 12. It's, it's a mirror. 
Um, apparently, the city of Corinth was world famous for the mirrors that it produced, not like our glass mirrors, obviously, more like a polished frying pan, a piece of beaten steel um, that when polished, you could see roughly uh, a reflection of yourself. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I, as I am fully known. What a beautiful little phrase that is easy to skip. You know, if you are a true believer this morning, you are fully known by the Lord. There's nothing that's happened to you that he doesn't know about. He sees and he knows everything. That's terrifying if you don't know Jesus, but it's very comforting if you do. Your situation is known to him, even though you might feel completely alone and isolated. How much can you tell about a person by looking at their reflection in a frying pan? The, po the point that Paul is trying to make is that a polished frying pan can only give you a rough idea of what someone is really like. You need to meet them face to face to know them fully. And so stop making such a fuss about the big three. Look at what he does in verse 13. I've heard, I've heard enough now about your big three. Let me give you my big three. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Those three qualities, faith, hope, and love, are consistent Pauline theology. He pulls those three throughout all of his letters in the New Testament. They are the marks of a spirit-filled Christian, and they will last for eternity. This chapter is giving us a contrast between the impermanent passing gifts and the never-ending gifts of faith, hope, and love that will remain. You know, verse 2 shows that it is possible to have faith without love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, it is possible to have faith without love, which is why love is the greatest. Verse 7 shows that love gives rise to hope. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, Paul says in verse 7. See, love is the greatest. Why? Because love gives rise to faith. You can have faith without love, but you can't have love without faith. Because love gives rise to hope. And so chapter 14 and verse 1 says, follow the way of love. What a magnificent chapter on love. Few people would disagree that if everyone in the world obeyed this chapter, it would result in heaven on earth, wouldn't it? It would end wars, it would fix families, it would kill racism, it would end poverty. But you know what this passage doesn't tell us? It doesn't tell us how do we get people to love like this. Forget about people. How do I get myself to love like this? And so let me give you another exercise to do. Back to verse 4, if we can have that on the screen. Instead of the word love, put the word Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. 
nor is he self-seeking or easily angered, nor does he keep a record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Can you see the answer? I have to go to Jesus. John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This love has no chance of arising in my own heart. It's got to come from outside of me. It's got to come from Jesus. He is the one who fulfills this passage. He is the one who demonstrates this kind of other person-centered love perfectly on the cross as he gave no thought to himself or his own comforts or his own convenience or his own self-preservation or his own good. He gave everything and held nothing back because he loves you and because he loves me. Except for his death for me, I would know nothing about love. Do you know that love this morning? Have you been a recipient of that love? You can only love the way 1 Corinthians 13 instructs us to if you have been loved and if you have received that love. 1 John 4 verse 19, my last cross-reference, we love because he first loved us. Please notice, he doesn't love us because we are loving Before we were loving, he loved us. Jesus doesn't die for us because we loved him. We love him because he died for us. Have you accepted that death and your need for forgiveness? And will you come to the one who embodies love, the Lord Jesus Christ? When you do, not only do you get forgiven, but you get the Spirit of God who enables us to love in this way. There's lots to think about, isn't there? I hope you'll do that. In the course of the day, I know we're going to be distracted now by Burevors rolls as we leave, but why not return to 1 Corinthians 13 at some point in the week and give it some thought and reflection? Will you bow with me now as we pray? Let's just have a moment of reflection and quiet. Perhaps you want to say something to God that's appropriate for your situation in the privacy of your own heart and mind. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you give us light in the midst of great darkness in a world so confused about love. You have shown us the way. You have come into the world in the person of your Son, who has exemplified love for us. And it's our prayer that you would help us this morning first to receive his love,
by accepting his death on the cross. And then would you help us to embody that love in this church, in our relationships with others. Father, forgive us for our self-centeredness, our self-regard. Forgive us for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And show us Jesus, to whom we are so grateful for his death and in whose name we pray. Amen.